Philippians 4 and verse 14, for what is your life? And I love this verse from Philippians. It is becoming one of my favorite life verses. Do you have life verses that matter to you that set the course of your life? This one is for me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am so glad I found that verse. Now, the King James just says, press toward the prize for the high calling. I'm glad I looked at the original to find that it actually meant the calling was upward. And that's the way the new King James actually translates it. Because that was tremendously insightful for me. You never go down when you are connecting with God. It's always up. You connect with the enemy, your life starts a downward spiral. You connect with God, it starts an upward climb. This is what God told Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel. You don't go down to Bethel. You go up. Bethel meant the house of God. I want to begin a new series today about the next step we should take in climbing higher and building our dream. That's our theme for this year. Building your dream is always a process. And we have already done a number of series on the steps that precede the one I will be starting a new series about today. Thus far, I've done series on the steps. You've got to see it. You've got to say it. You've got to pray it. You've got to play it. And last week, I concluded the series on you've got to, you've, you've, uh, you've got to play it. And uh, today, I want to talk about the need to stay the course as you walk through the process of building your dream. That's more important than you might realize. And the reason it is, is because before you get there, that is before your dream is fulfilled, before your destiny is accomplished and what God plans for your life to happen actually happens, there will be 10,000 excuses and reasons and objections as to why you should stop. And if you let those objections cause you to stop the upward climb, I promise you, you'll never see your dream become manifest. So today, I want to talk about stay it. You've got to stay the course. We all love what is familiar, don't we? How many of you have a favorite restaurant, favorite meal, favorite shirt or dress? Favorite pair of shoes, favorite lazy boy you sit in, favorite TV program. We all have our favorites, and they are usually designed around what we feel comfortable with. Comfort food. I'm edgy. I'll try just about anything. I'm serious. I've been in places in the world and eating stuff I can't even tell you about. You'd think I've lost my mind. Amen. And you, you name it, I'll try it. But when it comes to really being content and satisfied and enjoying a meal, I want to go back to my comfort food from Louisiana, sauce pecan, etouffee, gumbo. You know what I'm talking about? Boudin. 
That, that's comfort food. Why? Because it's familiar. For some of you, it might be something else. Maybe it's tortillas, and, and maybe it has to do with salsa. And I want something from New Iberia, Louisiana, you know, and I want something with some Tabasco sauce or Louisiana hot sauce. I, that's comfort food for me. Greens with some vinegar on it. And, amen. Ham hock in it. Comfort food. You know? It's comfortable because it's familiar. Today, let's talk about spiritual, spatial orientation phenomenon. That's a, a mouthful, and you'll understand what it means before I'm through, so don't worry about it for right now. Let's just pray. Father, speak to us today and help us to be able to receive from you the direction we need for our lives and let your word ever have increasing value in our lives where we treasure it more and more. Because you alone have the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. You cannot allow yourself in the upward climb of building your dream to fall back into the comfortable routine of yesterday. You can't. We turn to the Word of God in Mark 8, chapter 8, verse 22 through 26. Then he came, that is Christ, to Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. There are several things here that are immediately, to me, striking and strange. Most of us would recognize that Jesus spitting, rubbing spit on a man's eyes, might be just a little bit odd or peculiar. It resulted in a miracle, so even though that might be strange to us, we thank God for the outcome. When I say that these verses contain some things that are very strange, and very peculiar, even odd. I'm not even referring to Jesus spitting and rubbing it in the man's eyes. I'm talking about some other things that I'll identify, at least four of them in just a few moments. Let me begin by saying that sight is a priceless gift. Priceless. We can often take for granted our sight until something happens that makes us aware of just how precious a gift our sight actually is. About three or four years ago, I experienced the misfortune of the retina becoming detached in my right eye. I didn't do anything to make it happen. I didn't have an accident. I wasn't jostled. I didn't stumble. I didn't fall. I uh, wasn't hit. I was actually on KLM flying into Houston from Amsterdam and asleep. I can sleep on planes, fortunately. Thank God for that. And as we were landing, I woke up. And when I woke up, I could not see out of my right eye except for a little thin sliver of light at the bottom 
it was totally dark. It was like somebody had pulled the curtain over my right eye. And that was seemed very strange to me. It was so strange. That was on a Saturday, that Sunday after church. And I had called it in uh, to uh, the people that, that handle my health care and most of the employees here at the church, pastors here. And they called me back, and they had called out an eye specialist to actually come out on Sunday to check my eye. They said that it was that worrisome. I showed up, and they said, you have a detached retina after the test, and you need to get in and see a specialist tomorrow and get this repaired immediately, or otherwise the damage can be permanent. And so they made an appointment, and uh, I went and had that taken care of. And to be honest, that kind of thing had never much crossed my radar before. I mean, I've known of people it happened to, but I just never thought it would happen to me. I, I didn't get jostled, as I said, or do anything to make it take place. And so I thought, you know, no accident, no injury. I was fine. Uh, that wasn't the case. And I learned that's a, that's a lot more common than I had been aware that it was. In fact, just a couple, three weeks, or maybe a month after it happened to me, Brother Tim, one of the guys in the church, had the very same thing happen to him. I met him in the hall a moment ago. Ask him how he's doing he's now since that problem. He's doing great, and uh, I rejoice with him. But uh, I, it's not just a result of getting older. He's a number of years younger than me. And uh, I actually know of a young mother in the state of Mississippi with her two small children in the car, and she was driving down the freeway, the highway, and both her retinas detached at the same time while she was driving. And fortunately, she wasn't on a curve in the road. The road was straight, and she was able to just hold her steering wheel in place and slow down, put her brakes on, and come to a, 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 a place where she was moving slowly enough she could steer the car off to the right side and could tell by the way the tires rumbled across the, the rough edge of the shoulder of the highway that she had made it safely off the road. And she used her mobile phone to call for help. But she lost both retinas in just a moment. Amen. Because it was my right eye that was affected, which also happens to be my dominant eye, my depth perception, and in turn, my balance was affected me. And that effect still lasts to some degree even until this very day. You may or may not have noticed uh, throughout the last several years, while I'm preaching, I can turn and just momentarily just kind of, it looks like I lose my balance. And I promise you, I haven't had anything to drink. Amen. I promise. I'm not getting my anointing out of a bottle. <laughs> That's the truth. It's just my depth perception and my equilibrium was affected. When I walk up these stairs or any others, it's difficult for me to fully determine just how far to extend my foot because this eye registers depth at one level and this one does another. You don't, it takes a while to learn the balance between the two. And um, so I have to be careful when I, I make a sudden movement. And it's just one of the results of uh, the problem of a detached retina. I've had surgery where the doctor laser welded it back in. And since it left a little bump on the back of the retina where they buckle, he called it, where the well was made, he said, I'll have to live with with this problem of depth perception. There's not a lot they can do about it. But what that made me come to understand is that sight is a tremendously <coughs> valuable and important gift. And you don't always 
uh, value the things that, that ought to be valued the way that you should value them until you start to lose one. And while sight is a priceless gift, I want to tell you vision is even more priceless than sight. Without sight, you cannot see the beauty of the world that God has created and placed you in. You cannot drive a car or do any of the simple tasks that, that you take for granted right now. You can't do many of the things that, that, that you do every single day and never think twice about. But without vision, you cannot see the beauty, not of the world, but of your own future and destiny. And just as you are limited in many ways in life and what you can do if you do not have sight, if you don't have vision, you are limited in what you will do or accomplish with your life. It's true. Proverbs 29, 18 tells us that where there is no vision, the people perish. Perish is not just a spiritual word as in that they should not perish but have everlasting life. It's actually a word that is agricultural in its definition. It is related to purpose and destiny. It's an agricultural term. If you were raised in the country or on a farm, fruit, if it's harvested and left unrefrigerated, will perish. They talk about non-perishable goods. Crops left unharvested perish in the fields. That means it spoils or it goes to waste. And what that speaks of is its purpose is not accomplished or realized. And the gifts and talents that God has placed in you to bring Him glory and to elevate your life that were meant to fulfill your destiny can actually spoil and go unused. They can spoil. And they can be wasted by never being developed. Or, conversely, they can be wasted if they're used for the wrong purposes. Destinies can be spoiled. That, that even happens to Christians. It happens a lot to Christians. I'm not saying they're not saved they're saved but their destiny is never fulfilled and their dream is never built because they allow their gifts to spoil and when you lose one of your empirical senses one of the five empirical senses they tell us that the others become more keen and acute for example if you lose sight uh, the sense of hearing usually becomes more pronounced and sensitive uh, Noises that for the rest of us just kind of blend into the white noise of the background, the soft noise to you become more clear. And you can tell that among all of that, there are footprints that are, that are, that are being taken by someone. And you can tell the direction, whether they're coming towards you or going away from you and how near they are. All of these little things that we just kind of look over and that just kind of, as it were, submerge themselves into the background to you become pronounced. Your sense of, of touch, if you're blind, becomes more sensitive. I know that for a fact because all of us have been in elevators. I don't know if you've ever done this or not, and I don't recommend you do it with an elevator full of people, but if you're in one alone uh, and you're in a tall building, I've pushed the button and they're on the control panel. Beside the buttons you push are all these little dots and that's Braille. And to someone that has learned to read Braille with their fingers, that tells them the number of the floor that they need to be going to. And so this is what I've done. After I've gotten on an elevator by myself in a tall building, I've closed my eyes and reached out to touch that panel before on many occasions. And I've done this. 
and tried to discern the difference between one set of dots and another. And I'm going to tell you how insensitive I am, how callous my fingertips are. I can't even tell from one to the other. Much less read that this one is a nine and that one's a three. Uh-uh. But people who lose a, a sense, one of the empirical senses, their others become more pronounced and they call it compensation. However, when you lose vision as opposed to sight, there is no compensation that occurs. There is nothing that can replace vision or substitute for its loss. There are things that can help you reach your destination if you lose your sight, but nothing can help you reach your destiny if you lose and do not possess vision. Many believers go through life unaware of this and therefore wonder why their lives lack impact and meaning. Jesus led the blind man out of town that we just read about. Now I have a question. Why didn't he just heal the man right there? Wouldn't that have created a, an opportunity for the gospel to be preached? Wouldn't that have impressed everyone? and created an opportunity for Jesus to tell about the kingdom of God to the people of the city? Seems to me it would have. That would have been pretty good advertisement. This guy just had his eyes open right in the middle of all of his friends and family, and everybody saying, whoa, how'd you do that? And Jesus said, well, this is the way it is. I'm a representative of the kingdom of God, and then he could have, that would have been his entry point, right? But he didn't. He overlooked the evangelistic opportunity and took the man and led him out of the city. That is the first clue that something is going on here that is strange. Never mind that he's going to spit and rub it in the man's eyes. That's, that's unusual. But look at how many other things are actually very strange here. The first clue is he didn't heal the man right there, and he certainly could have. The second clue that something unique is happening in this story is that Jesus had to pray for the man two times. Now, I want to ask you, when did Jesus ever have to pray for anything twice? When he broke the fishes and loaves after saying a prayer. Did he have to, when he broke it, it just remained two smaller pieces? And he had to look up and say, okay, let me pray this prayer again. No. From the moment he prayed, the fish and loaves began to multiply in his hands as he broke them. When he healed the lepers, did he have to sell them twice? Okay, you're cleansed, go your way. No. When he called Lazarus from the tomb, did he stand there and say, Lazarus, come forth? And nothing happened. And he waited. And the disciples are turning red and getting embarrassed and say, gee, this is not good. This is humiliating. And then Jesus said, hold on. It'll work. Just, just be patient. Lazarus! I said, come forth. Did it happen like that? No. One time, and you could hear the shuffling sound from inside that tomb as a dead man managed to get to his feet again and come hobbling out bound with grave clothes. When he was asleep in the bow of the boat, and they came and woke him up. How many times did he have to say, peace be still? Once. It's all that was required. All you need is for God to speak a word over your situation, and it changes right then. But for this man, it wasn't that way. 
Jesus prayed for him and had to pray for him twice because the scripture says he saw men as trees walking. There were two other things that convinced me that something very strange is happening, and that is after healing the man, you will notice that Christ refused to allow the man to return back to his home, town. That seems really strange. You would think that he would say to this man as he did the demoniac of Gadara, go back and tell your family and friends what the Lord has done. But he didn't. He said, you never go back to this place again. And then the fourth thing is that he also told the man, if any of your old friends come from your hometown or your village, your family, and they ask you what has happened, you don't even tell them. You don't go tell them. And uh, actually, I, I think what he meant was you could tell them if they, they ask, but you don't go volunteer it. You don't go tell people, I think is the way the scripture actually read here, and you don't volunteer that I've done this for you. And all of that to me seems very mysterious. Never mind the spitting on the guy's eyes, but these four things show me there's something going on in this story that is deeper than what you might read or suspect is happening at the surface. And I, I look at this, and then it occurs to me, there is a reason that Jesus is leading this man out of town. He's leading him out of what is familiar. Because when, like I said a while ago, you, you become comfortable in your situation. You become comfortable with your problem. You become comfortable in your circumstance. And when you're blind, for example, even though you can't see, you learn to navigate in the house pretty well. Four and a half steps this way, there's a hall. And then when I step out of the hall after taking six steps, I'm going to hit the sofa unless I'm careful. And the coffee table is over here. And the kitchen counter is here. And when you are blind, you can learn to live in your house without anybody directing you and guiding your steps because you learn how to become comfortable in the middle of your circumstance. I don't drink coffee, but I'm quite sure all of us to some degree are like this blind man. I, I'm sure. I, I've met people. I don't even think their eyes open until they've had their first cup of coffee. Amen. And and they, they can make their way through the kitchen, dodge a refrigerator, and go straight to Mr. Coffee Maker. Amen. And, and uh, they, they, then they open their eyes. You see, Jesus led the man out of town because we become comfortable living in our familiar settings. So much so that we don't seek God for what he has for us next. Like comfort food, we retreat back into the things that we are most familiar with or the lazy boy recliner or the well-broken-in pair of shoes or the favorite dress. Are you hearing what I'm saying right now? Jesus led the man out of his familiar surroundings and out of his comfort zone so he could increase the man's hunger and capacity and therefore enable him to experience breakthrough in his situation. Because you don't have breakthrough as long as you accept things the way they are. You gotta want it bad enough that you you just go, I, I gotta get out of this situation. And 
Jesus said, I'm going to help you out, sir. Come here. I'm not going to do this miracle right now. I'm taking you out of your comfort zone. And to get to the next level always requires that of us. We must let go of what is comfortable and familiar if we want to embrace what waits for us next. Not only does your familiar environment become a hindrance to you, reaching the next level and receiving your sight, but the people around you can limit you as well without even intending to. They're holding you back. You see, they learn to accept you with your infirmity and let you as a person exist. And they see you as someone with limited capacity and ability. So they start making allowances for you, you know. Uh, here, let me guide you through. There's a, there's a table over here. And, and I have actually, this hap has happened on several occasions. I remember trying to help a blind man one time. And I just said, sir, let me help you. There's a curb. And he said, no. He said, I really appreciate you wanting to help me. But he said, if you help me, I'll never learn to navigate these circumstances by myself. And you can't always be there to help me, sir, so thank you. And without even intending to, by accommodating the problem or the situation that exists in our lives, people are being cruel to us, thinking they're being kind, but they're actually encouraging us to not step any higher. Look for a hand instead of learning how to deal with it. Oh, I'm preaching right now. They actually view their actions of accommodation toward us as acts of kindness and gentleness when in reality that might be the worst form of cruelty because the one thing you don't want to do is spend the rest of your life where you're at right now. You don't want everybody to just make you feel happy and comfortable at the place you're living. You want somebody to challenge you. Amen, amen, and make you reach for more one of the worst things you can do in life is to only allow people around you who accept your limitations. That's right. You need people around you that will challenge you, not just those who will allow you to live and be content with your blindness. But you know what we do? We surround ourselves deliberately and intentionally with people that don't challenge us because they're like the lazy boy. They're like the broken in pair of house slippers. They're like Louisiana gumbo. It's just, it's easy. It's comfortable. You understand what I'm saying and we're not challenged. And, and this is why we have to make a deliberate effort to include in our social life, our worship circle, our friends. We've got to have people that don't mind telling us the way that it is. Amen. And challenging us. I don't mean people that are cruel. Some people are just downright mean. You know what I'm talking about? And they'll excuse their meanness. I say, I'm just trying to help. That's all. No, you're not. You've got a mean streak. You're sadistic. That's what you are. You like hurting people. Tell it like it is. Thank you, Pastor, for preaching so well this morning. Amen. But we gather around us people that don't do that. You know why? Because of this very reason. I'll tell you. The, in the valley of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. We would rather see a little bit better than everybody else. 
uh-huh, than be challenged to have sight in both eyes. Because as long as I'm doing better than you and I surround myself with people that look up to me and make me feel good about myself, you know, then I'm not challenged to stretch anymore. And you, what you really are is you're the one-eyed man in the valley of the blind if you're not careful. And what you need somebody to do is say, look, you got two eyes you need to open up here. There's more that God has for you. And don't think I'm being unkind. Amen. And it works against us, and, and it works against us in, in ways that we might not even understand. We can be doing a little bit better than those around us, but we stop climbing because we surround ourselves with people that tell us how good we're doing. And we are doing a little bit good, better than them. But you want to watch something shift in a hurry? You want to watch something change? Get your eyes open, and all of a sudden the people who were here, when you were here, you get you climb now and you're here, they don't like you anymore. You see, they have a vested interest too in holding you down. And all of a sudden, who do you think you are? And I deserve that, not you. And you have to be sure that, that you constantly are making an effort to stay inspired. You've got to keep on. You've got to stay it. You've got to keep building your dream regardless of whether people understand you or not, accept it or not, think you've got the big head or not. Hello, somebody. Jesus took the man out of his familiar surroundings and away from his familiar friends that he could enable him to move into the destiny that God had ordained for him. Sometimes to get what God has in store for you, you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to leave the familiar skills that you've developed so well that you can do the present task you, you do blindfolded. You see, because you can be an expert at this level, but to get up to the next level makes you become a novice all over again. And some of us don't want to have to learn new skills to be able to get them. We want to be patted on the back for how good we do here rather than stretch to be able to do good up here. You got to keep learning, baby. You got to keep reaching. You got to keep stretching. Amen. 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 You have to be willing to become a novice once more and start learning all over. And that's got to happen many times in the course of your life. It's kind of like the new job at Boudreaux and Thibodeau went to apply for. I haven't told so many Boudreaux and Thibodeau jokes, y'all getting tired of them yet, have I? Okay, just bear with me, but I like this one. Boudreaux and Thibodeau worked in a Louisiana sugar house plant down by New Iberia. And the primary function of the sugar house is to cook the syrup cane after the, the sugar cane after the harvest. And they cook the sugar cane into syrup. It becomes that thick, dark. That, that molasses, oh man, that, that they put in pecan pie, if they, you really know how to make a pecan pie. And, and after the cane is cooked and prepared, these plants don't operate 12 months out of the year like most industrial plants. After the, the cane is cooked and the sugars, uh, the, the syrup is prepared, they shut the plant plant down for months at a time and they lay everybody off and except for a few full-time workers and maintenance people that, are, that keep things going until the next harvest and the season starts again. All the other employees take that time off to go live off the land, trapping, hunting, shrimping, fishing. That's, that's the culture in Louisiana. If you've ever been over near New Iberia and seen those sugarcane fields and those, those sugarcane factories and mills, you know what I'm talking about. Well, Boudreaux and Thibodeau were laid 
paid off and they tried living off the land and the fish were not biting so they got bored and Boudreaux says hey Tib I heard that they're hiring down there in NASA in Houston and so let's go down there and see if we can get a full time job share and Thibodeau says okay Bood let's go and Thibodeau and Boudreaux go down to the personnel office at NASA and sit in line and after a while the personnel manager comes out to the waiting room and asks Boudreaux to come into the office and sit down and the personnel manager asks him the question what is your name and Boudreaux tells him and the personnel officers ask what do you do for a living Mr. Boudreaux and Boudreaux says I'm a pilot and the personnel manager immediately said a pilot well that's great this is NASA we hire lots of pilots and you're hired immediately you start work in the morning sir and so be here first thing in the morning Boudreaux gets excited jumps up goes out to the lobby and tells his friend Thibodeau get in there fast Chad they're giving them jobs away amen and right and left they're giving them jobs away and after a while, the personnel manager comes out and gets Thibodeau and brings him in and asks him to sit down ask him his name. And Thibodeau tells him, I'm Thibodeau. And the personnel manager says, what do you do for a living, Mr. Thibodeau? And Thibodeau says, I'm a sugar cane cutter from South Louisiana. And the personnel manager says, sugar cane cutter from South Louisiana? And he said, yeah, down near New Iberia. And he said, sir, this is NASA. We don't have any jobs at NASA for sugar cane cutters. And Thibodeau said, but you hired my friend Boudreaux. And the personnel manager said, but Boudreaux is a pilot. And Thibodeau said, he can't pilot until I cut it. Amen. <laughs> so... Maybe you need to learn some new skills if you hear where I'm coming from. If you want to work at NASA, you want to elevate your life, you got to learn a new skill or two. To have a breakthrough, you must stop hanging around people who have defined you by what you cannot do instead of what you can do. Look at somebody and say, don't judge me by what I can't do. You don't know what I'm going to learn tomorrow or next week or next month or next year because I'm not staying at the same level that I'm at right now. Where you see me today is not where you're going to find me. You can't let people hold you back or fit you comfortably into the little slot they have picked out for you. There are too many people in the world who are content to just do a little better than somebody else who is blind. And they feel they're doing okay because they see out of one eye and you don't see out of either one. But notice again that instead of being a step ahead, the ones who could already see end up getting left behind whenever both your eyes are open. And this causes a fundamental shift in relationships anyway. And for that reason, if for no other reason, you have to make certain that you don't have people that hold you down around you. And it's difficult to determine if they're holding you back until you start doing a little bit better. Amen. But if you are around people that are holding you from progressing, keeping your ministry from getting off the ground, keeping your destiny from becoming manifest, keeping you from going back to school or doing something to elevate your life, don't let those people speak into your life. Amen. Don't do it. Hear what I'm saying? You don't do it. Amen. Jesus spit on his hands and rubbed it in the man's eyes and I'm just about done. 
Now that is odd, as I pointed out. I mean, anybody here sick today? You got a cold, a headache, or something? If I were to say, come up here, I'm going to spit on your eyes, and you're going to get healed. Most of you would say, thanks, but I'll keep the cold. I'll be fine. It, you know, it, I'll get over it in seven days anyway. Why did Jesus spit in the man's eyes? Look at the meaning of the name of the place where all this occurred. The name of the city was Bethsaida. It means Beth, the prefix, means house. Beth is actually a common prefix to Hebrew cities and their names. For example, there's Bethavin, which is the house of vanity. There is Bethani, which is the house of song. Bethel, the house of God. Bethlehem, the house of bread, and many others. Bethsaida was only one of dozens of cities that had the first prefix, Beth, attached to it. And it means house of fishing. It was located on the lake. But that in itself is almost a little misleading. Because Strong's Concordance compares the word that, that the latter part of the word Beth with the same word for mire in Hebrew or stuck where David said he brought me out of the miry clay. You can get stuck. You, can, you know what I'm talking about? That Louisiana gumbo mud or mixed with clay and you get stuck and... <laughs> You know, you got to walk like that. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, this is, this is one of the meanings of that word that is used there with the little Beth or house in front of it. And it relates in a way they believe to the way people caught fish because people would catch fish by setting traps. And maybe you've heard of them, weirs, W-E-I-R-S. And they'll put them on a river or someplace where there's water moving or fish swimming maybe between two rocks, and as the water flows through, the fish will swim into this net. It's wide at the mouth, and it starts narrowing down, and it's long, and it finally narrows down to a place that the fish gets trapped because the fish doesn't have a reverse gear, can't swim backward, and so it gets stuck. It gets mired. It gets trapped in the end of that net and cannot turn around, and the fishermen come, and they take it out, and this is one of the meanings of the house of Bethsaida. It means house of fishing or house of traps, house of snares. In fact, the, the, Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebrew word used in Strong's Concordance literally offers house of snares as one of the alternative meanings. And Jesus spat on this man's eyes because he wanted to get out of his eyes whatever it was that made him get trapped or stuck in life. Sometimes to get unstuck, you got to see some things you don't see right now. Oh, come on, help me out here. To get unstuck in your relationship, you've got to have a new perspective. To get unstuck in your ministry, you've got to learn some stuff and see some things you don't see right now. You aren't moving forward because you're stuck. And sometimes Jesus has to come along and unstick you from where you're stuck before things get any better. Amen. When the man opened his eyes, he saw men but his trees walking. Jesus prayed for him. He, he could see, but he saw men as tall as trees. His perception of reality was actually inverted because it does not say that he's, if men five to six feet tall 
were as tall in his eyesight as trees. It didn't say that trees reached the heaven. It didn't say that that donkey was as big as an elephant. It didn't say the house looked like a castle. The only thing that was out of perspective was men. He saw men as being too big. Mm, Now I'm going to preach to you. Because here is where the problem is actually uh, uh, stemming from. There's a Serbian woman named Bojana Danilovic who has a rare condition. She's being studied right now by Harvard and MIT universities. This rare condition makes everything she sees be upside down, turned upside down. The reason for that is in the process of sight, when you see an image, your eye actually turns it upside down and casts it on the back of the retina. And from the retina, the optic nerve takes it to the brain and the brain does an adjustment and turns it right side up again. But the images on the back of your retina are all inverted. They're upside down. Something happened with this woman and whatever that part of her brain is, it never developed. And so instead of the image being turned right side up again, she sees it upside down. She reads a newspaper upside down, reads a book upside down. There are two televisions in her home. One is for the members of the family that view, that see normally. The other is upside down so that she can see it. Y'all, I want you to see this picture. She can drive. She can function. She can cook. She can clean house. Everything around her is upside down. When she drives, the car coming to water are not down on the road they're up above and the sky is on the bottom but you know what they found out in studying her it only takes four or five days for you to adjust to where you can accept inverted reality or sight without any problem you can function with everything upside down they actually developed a lens they put over people's eyes and the lens turned the images they were seeing upside down they made them wear them for a week and at the end of four to five days they could all see and function as though they were seeing things normally but the images were actually standing on their head hello What I'm trying to tell you is you can become accustomed to abnormality and you can become accustomed to seeing things the wrong, oh, did I I say it? Dare I say it? Oh, that's just the way I see it. Well, you might be seeing it upside down. Hello, somebody. You might not be seeing it the way that it really is and the condition they have called spatial orientation phenomenon. Spatial meaning space. What she sees in her space is oriented upside down. I contend that this man that Jesus healed had spiritual spatial orientation phenomenon. He saw men as trees, and the reason his life was messed up, he saw some things too big and others that were big he was seeing too small. Oh, hear what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you can live your life trying to please people because you are a people pleaser. You can get caught in a people pleaser trap, spend all of your energy trying to make those around you happy, and you'll never be happy because you've elevated them in your sight, and they're not as tall as you think they are. There are other things that are more important in life. You live your life 
trying to make people happy and spend your energy trying to please people that will never be happy. And because they're never happy, you won't ever be either. Your sight is upside down. Hallelujah. Help me now, somebody. Isn't that what Jesus told the Pharisees? You make white the outside of the cup, but inside it's full of extortion and excess. You look good on the outside, but you hadn't fixed up what's going on in here. And, and then you strain at a gnat. Something small chokes you, but a camel, you swallow it without any hesitation. You have spiritual spatial orientation phenomenon. Oh, if I could pray a word here today, it's God deliver us from people pleasing. God help us to stand today and please you because we oftentimes neglect you while we're trying to please everyone around us and my time is so far gone. We exaggerate and make important things that are not as important as we want them to be or think they are. It's approval addiction. We become addicted to the approval of people and we let our friends and our family or we let whatever the latest special interest group is out there tell us how we're supposed to live. Look, the Bible is the Bible and it'll never be anything but the Bible. I don't care who doesn't like it or wants to change it. And I'm not saying that without compassion or concern. I love people. But what I mean is I got a choice. Do I make people big or do I make God big? Which one? I choose to make God matter in my life. I would rather please him. And if you don't like it, gee, I'm sorry. I'd like to make you happy. But I got to please the God that created me and the God that made me. God wash our eyes. God, give us sight. God, help us to see things with divine clarity. Amen. Israel sent 12 spies into the promised land, and 10 of them brought back a bad report because they had spiritual spatial orientation phenomenon. This is what they said. There we saw the giants, descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so were we... And, in their sight. What? Grasshoppers. Do you realize for a six foot tall man to be a grasshopper, grasshoppers only come up to your ankles. That means that those giants in their mind were at least 60 to 70 feet tall. Goliath was not 60 to 70 feet tall. He was only nine feet tall. And you can blow your problems up until they get so big in your mind that you are nothing and God becomes insignificant. But let God be true and every man a liar. If the Lord is with you, who can be against you? No weapon formed against you can prosper if God's on your side. Hello, somebody. Mm. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Spiritual spatial orientation phenomenon. Jesus touched the man and made him look up. And right there you see where the problem comes from. You're not looking the right direction. And that's why you're, you're seeing things out of proportion. Look up, sir. Don't look at men. Look up. 
And this is also why, and i got to close, this is also why Jesus said don't go back to your city. Amen. Because if you go back there, they'll talk you right out of what I'm doing for you right now. And there will be people that will do that. you got to lose some influences in your life. If you want your life to change, you want to get off drugs, stop hanging around people who are doing them. Am I talking to anybody? You want to get off alcohol, stop running with guys that do nothing but drink all weekend long. You want to honor your marriage and be faithful, don't run with those who cheat every chance they get. You hearing what I'm talking about? I'm preaching to somebody right now. Lose the influences. Don't go back to that city. Not only that, and I close. It's something really unusual. Jesus tells him, if you see anybody from your old life and they come up to you, you don't tell them what God has done. Don't. First of all, they should have enough intelligence to see it for themselves. And the fact that we have to tell them that things have changed means something's going on that's not good with them. Let me explain. Have you ever got a new car, drove it over your buddy's house? Hey, George, how are you? Oh, good, good. He just acted like you drove up in the same rattle trap you've had for the last 10 years. Amen. That tells you there's a problem there. Hate to be the one to burst your bubble, but I want to let you know, George is not happy about your new car. Or he would have said, oh my God, look at that new car you just got. If you got to tell the man you can see, it means he's not happy that you got your sight. You don't need to be around that any longer. Stand with me if you would, please. It's the upward call. The Upward call. Let God constantly elevate your life.